90s footy fans, welcome to season nine of the 90s Club Footy Podcast. We have another big season ahead with a number of great guests locked in. In this episode, we catch up with former Premiership Collingwood defender Shane Morwood. Shane first began his VFL career with South Melbourne in the early 1980s. He spent two seasons with the club playing 17 games before moving to the Collingwood Magpies for the 1983 season. Shane then spent 11 seasons in the black and white, playing 195 games, including the famous 1990 AFL Grand Final. In this episode, Shane talks about playing alongside his two brothers at South Melbourne, the reasons why he joined Collingwood, the 1990 Premiership win, some of his toughest opposition, and state of origin football. I hope you enjoy the 81st member of the 90s Club Footy podcast, Shane Morwood. Shane Morwood, thank you for jumping on the 90s Club Footy Podcast. Really terrific to have you on. Looking forward to reminiscing about your time in the VFL-AFL. Uh, thanks, Trent. It's a pleasure to be here. I, uh, I'm aware of the history that you've created with a number of former VFL-AFL players, so uh, I feel privileged to be a part, of the, a part of the group, part of the team. Well, it's funny. I've got a mate who's a mad Collingwood supporter, and he did say, if you're doing any Collingwood plays, you've got to get the former number seven on there, the centre half back, the gun backman uh, in Shane Morwood. So I said, I'll track him down, and we're here. We are now. It's interesting. I uh, I sent a text to Dakes. Uh, I think it was last week, or maybe the week before, um, after Josh had uh, won the BNF, and uh, I said, look, congratulate both the boys on their seasons and winning the flag. And uh, I said, it's about time a number seven at Collingwood won a won a BNF. <laughs> <laughs> what a player and what a year he had too, Josh Dacos. We'll talk more about the grand final in 2023 a little bit later on. But before we talk all things footy, I'm really interested, what are you doing with yourself currently from an employment point of view? And do you still have any footy involvement? Uh, yes, from a uh, a local point of view. and Local could be anywhere. So it could be the north, the south, east, the west of the state. So a little bit of work with uh, AFL Victoria. So uh, and what they classify as a coach developer. So I'll go to uh, clubs in certain regions and talk to the coaches, the junior coaches, about coaching. Uh, they could be joined by you know, committee members of the club uh, and ensure that uh, they're completely aware about what coaching is and their roles and responsibilities, along with uh, trying to align both committee and coaches so they're on the same page as to what they want to achieve and what their key objectives are when you um, when you're coaching young young children, male or female. And uh, as you're aware, as a school teacher, it's uh, such a really important role. Absolutely, and I guess too, um, you know, it's a it's a time where I guess footy is really important that we get the right people leading the way, and the clubs have got really good leaders because we've got other sports that are sort of competing against AFL football. So. The experience that uh, the coaches and I guess the leaders of the club is really important to ensure that we have these kids really staying in the game and progressing through, whether it's boys or girls. Absolutely, absolutely, and we know the impact um, coaches uh, and teachers can have on on young children. So we want the experience with those people to be really positive and 
encouraging and um, we want to develop each of them as, as best as we can so they can achieve the best that they can. So I think if we uh, if we get individuals that are on their own uh, little path to glory and want to win premierships and that's what they focus on, they they lose, uh, and, uh, I suppose, they've lost perspective of what they should be doing. Let's look at your AFL journey or your VFL AFL journey, I should say. Um, it began back in the early 80s, so uh, some time ago, but I've got no doubt you've got a, uh, a great memory of uh, all the years that you played. You started with South Melbourne. How did you make your way to, to that club? Uh, back in the day, it was Bones. So uh, our family lived in Noble Park, and that was the, the South Melbourne zone. So um, I had two older brothers that were down to the Swans at at that stage, so being Paul and Tony, Paul being the oldest, and Paul started there in 1977 and Tony in 78. Um, and I was invited down there for 1980 season. And you had the chance to play your debut game uh, alongside your two brothers. That must have been a memorable way to start your VFL journey. Yeah, it took, uh, it took a season and a half to sort of get there. I, I nearly um, I nearly didn't get a or start a career. I was, I was probably about Midway through the 1981 season, where I, don't know, I was probably just a bit lost and unsure of you know why I'm here really, and uh, I've sort of been playing some good footy in the reserves level, but um, there was no sort of communication or feedback to receive back in those days. And uh, Ian Stewart was our coach at the time, and I just went up to Ian. I think it was a Tuesday night at training, and just said, "Look, I'm thinking about going back home to Noble Park and play," and uh, unsure of what response I'd get. Uh, maybe I didn't thought about that, and he said, "Yeah, that's okay, Shane. You you do what you want to do. If you want to head back, if you thought that's the right thing for you, you can do that. Or I'll see you Thursday night." And I sort of walked away from the conversation. Went, oh, okay. <laughs> so I continued on for um, obviously for a lot, lot longer now from a career point of view. But uh, four weeks later, after that conversation, I played my first senior game with uh, my two older brothers. So played against uh, the old Fitzroy Football Club. We know what they're called now, and uh, it was a, a memorable game. Um, I remember my first touch went straight through my hands. They played me in the back pocket. I hadn't played in the back line. I'm not sure why they put me in the back pocket, but um, I remember reading the ball off uh, Rod Carter and Bernie Quinlan. It was a wet day, and I read the uh, play pretty well, but then uh, I failed to take the ball in my hands. It went straight through my hands. And uh, Lee Manane, if you remember Lee Manane of the 80s, early 80s, he, uh, he was back in the goal square and said, thanks very much, and kicked a goal. So... <laughs> That was my first touch. It wasn't a stat, it was a touch. But um, I think the other thing I remember of that game, I remember I, I thought I'd tackled Bernie Quinlan, but I think he I really got in his way. I only weighed about 70 kilos at that stage, so Bernie Quinlan felt like he weighed 120 kilos when he fell on top of me and squashed me. So, um, and we lost the game and I got dropped the following week. So, um, so it wasn't the, the greatest of uh, memories, but uh, I can laugh about it now. And to play with your two brothers, like in your debut game, that must have been something pretty special as well, I would have thought. And, and special, for, special for your family? Oh, uh, yeah, definitely. Definitely special for the family. I mean, I was probably still a bit nervous and, uh, and thinking, what am I doing out here in some ways? Because the game was so much faster than the reserves were. All the boys were bigger. Um, so there's a bit to learn and a uh, bit to develop as a, as a young player. So cause I hadn't played a lot of football in itself. So um, I was still. Uh, very, very green because at junior level, I wasn't uh, wasn't a great player until sort of hit 16 and then all of a sudden just everything came together and then I just, you know, dominated the, 
uh, juniors from 16s and, and 18s, and next minute I'm sort of playing their golf footy. So it was a, it was a massive uh, change in environments for me. But um, yeah, the family were pretty excited. I think there's a photo, it was a photo of the Herald or the Sun, it would have been back in those days. And um, yeah, the six boys in the family plus mum and dad. So I think all of us are in a photo in the. In the lounge room of the house in in Noble Park, and they all got uh, South Melbourne jumps on, so it was pretty exciting to have you know, half the boys in uh, playing senior footy the next day. Hey, it would have been a really interesting time playing for South Melbourne during those early nineties. Uh, sorry, early eighties, I should say, because I did read in nineteen eighty two, and you'd be able to elaborate a little bit more. You played your home matches in Sydney, but um, I guess the playing group mostly lived in Melbourne, and then the club fully ro- ro- uh, relocated in nineteen eighty three. How was that from a playing perspective and from the team's perspective to um, to sort of have the way the the club set up in that sort of way? Yeah, so we train was still at the Lake Oval uh, in '82, but yeah, you're right. Every home game was on a Sunday prime time TV, um, so we travelled to Sydney on a Sunday morning and then flew back on the Sunday night. So it ended up being a bit of an advantage for us because, yeah, I assume we played ten or eleven games up in Sydney that year. Uh, for the team we were playing, um, they only did it once. So it was quite abnormal for them. So we think that gave us a bit of an advantage. And we played some pretty good footy out there against you know, against every team. So I can't remember the win-loss ratio back in 82. But I remember we were on the night grand final in 82 against uh, North Melbourne out at Waverley. I think it was called the Escort Cup, maybe, in 82. So that was played on the Tuesday night. So... Um, but the the experience of playing at uh, the SCG was was fantastic. But what it created from a VFL point of view is that well, I think we we want to relocate relocate a, a club, and um, the Swans seemed like the likely selection. And it was obviously a um, maybe a test the market type period through '82. Mm-hmm. I think we might have played one game in '81 up there as well. I think we played against Collingwood, which I played in from memory. Um, so yeah, so it's. It just it created two fractions within the club, so it was the keep south at south people and then the, the pro Sydney people. So um, I don't think it went the way they hoped it, it would. And then a number of players uh, left the club because uh, we didn't want to go to Sydney to live. Um, I'm not sure if from other individuals' point of view. For mine, it wasn't. I didn't want to play with the Swans. I just didn't want to live in Sydney. So, yeah. um, but there was no negotiations. Back then, it was pretty poorly managed from my point of view. So I had a conversation, I think it was October or November that year, and they wanted to know my intent. So I said, well, I don't want to live in Sydney. I want to stay here. So um, I said, we'll have to apply for a clearance. And they said, well, we won't give you one. I said, okay, well, walked out of the meeting and never heard from him ever again. So, 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 how did, disappointing. so how did Collingwood come into the frame then? Did, uh, you know... Did you sort of approach them yourself? Did they sort of was there talk? I guess in amongst the industry that you were one that weren't real, wasn't real keen to go to Sydney, so that they would like you know you to come to Collingwood and play. Did other clubs sort of have a a chance to talk to you as well before you decided that Collingwood was going to be your next home? Yeah, there's about five, I think five, maybe six clubs that were interested. And then my other brother Paul, the oldest one, he was uh, in the same zone as me. Didn't want to go to Sydney to to live, so. It was a bit of a, a package type deal. Who's going to get Shane and Paul Morwood to to their club? Um, and then we decided, which would have been the early the following year, eighty three, that Collingwood was going to be the team. And then uh, 
I won't describe my oldest brother, but uh, he had a conversation that night after he decided, and we both decided to go to Collingwood, that he caught up with Ian Stewart, who was, at that stage, he'd gone to St Kilda. I think he was the football administration manager or CEO or whatever the role was. And Tony Jewell was coach. So, so he went and had a few beers with him. And, of course, he rang me the next day and said, look, I've changed my mind. I'm going to go to St Kilda. So a few beers in the summer, mate. You can make some <laughs> poor decisions. And uh, he made a poor decision. Um, anyway, I said, well, oh, then he, oh, actually, in that conversation, he said, well, they just want me to come. They're not interested in you. And I said, that's fine. I'm not going anywhere. I wouldn't be going there. I said, Collingwood, I'm going to Collingwood. So that's how it ended up. So I think they did a, the other thing they're coming to play then, but Silvio Fashini took the VFL rules to court because um, he believed, his lawyers believed it was restraint of trade, which um, it was in, ruled in favour. So they rewrite the rules. And as a result, uh, Silvio and Paul and St. Kilda without a clearance. I think Paul played without a clearance against your team, Geelong, in 1983. I'm not sure what round it was, but that was news to me. No one, I was, I was unaware of it, so the family was unaware of it. So yeah, right. Definitely a, a huge secret that was kept. But um, that's how he ended up at St. Kilda. And it's, um, in a way, how I ended up at Collingwood. We'll be certainly looking to him to fire this afternoon. Collingwood swing into attack, up towards full four, just about a mark to Morewood, and he's got it. Shane Morewood, formerly of the Swans, about 30 metres out from goal, a chance for first score of the game. Wynn really swinging that one around, and he's put it through for a goal. When you walk through the doors of the Collingwood Football Club, I guess, you know, it's a famous football club. It has been for many years, and you look at the current day and just the, the aura it has. What was the aura like, I guess, those initial days that you walked in and um, and I guess, you know, made your way to the Collingwood Football Club and uh, and started your career there? Uh, in complete contrast to the Swan. So um, facilities were so much better. Um, the access to even just basic gear like shorts, socks, you know, a training jumper. There was never anything like that at, uh, at the Swans. Um, I, probably, I probably thought, not probably, I did think that it was too far the other way where these guys got everything on a platter when you come from a club that, that had been struggling and I only experienced it for three years while I was there. But um, it, was a, it was a battle. Um, you get to Collingwood and, well, is this how the other clubs uh, are financially situated and, and how they provide you know, lots of things to our, to our players. So um, it was a big contrast. And then um, I'd only played 17 league games, so to go to uh, a club that had heavily recruited some very uh, high-profile players from other clubs and be a part of that group. But um, I think from the, the supporters' point of view, it was um, probably lost because I was a recruit. So I was supposed to be pretty good and champion, but I still had a long way to go before I was going to – I was a champion, but hit a status where I was playing good, consistent football at that, at that level. So in the conversations that Collingwood had with you, Shane, like was did they sort of say, listen, there's a there's a position there, at, you know, in the defensive six there for you, but obviously, you know, form and injury is going to come into play as well. But, you know, they certainly had you, they had plans for you to be, you know, part of that that 21, you know, from the early days. Or did they say, listen, that you're going to still have to do a bit of work to to get a, a spot, you know, cemented in that lineup? No, they just, they just saw me as more of a potential um player, a uh, consistent senior player at the club. So as I said, I only played 17, 17 games at the Swans and um, besides my first game, uh, the 16 others were all forward. 
So um, when I first went to Collingwood, it was playing forward. And that, uh, so that was 83 and 84. And then 85, uh, there was a mixture and 86 of uh, on ball and forward. So the defensive side of me, uh, or role, started in 1987. And 87 came about, uh, I did my PCL and MCL a couple of days before the, um, the first game. And then so I was out and Bakes did his knee also. I can't remember what his issue was, but we both sort of come back in the round 14, something like that, for the season. And both played a game against North Melbourne Reserves. And then the next week, we're both in the ones. We're playing Sydney uh, uh, in Sydney. And Warwick Kappa was all the rage back then and kicking <laughs> uh, goals from everywhere, taking screamers on Chrissy Langford's neck, and which we've seen the highlights of over many years. And, Anyway, Lee had come up to me and said, um, hey, how do you feel about playing uh, full back on Kappa? And I'm a pretty easy young guy and uh, said, yeah, whatever you want, mate. No problem. So I said, my only time experience in the back half was uh, my first game against Fitzroy. <laughs> uh, so it had been a while ago. But, uh, I said, yeah, no problem. So, um, so I got best on ground, held into one goal. We lost the game. I think it was a close game, but... Um, that really started my, my role as a as a key defender. So fullback, south back, half back flank. I was sort of agile enough. I could play on a tall or I could play on a small to medium type player as well. So um, but also set up play from a from an attacking defensive role. What was the whiz like to play on? Um, you see him, I guess, you know, post football, you know, he's very uh, you know, very, I guess, random with some of the stuff he says and uh, you know, he's certainly got a, a, a positive energy about him. What was he like to play as a direct opponent uh, on the ground? He was uh, completely the opposite of what you see. And I think because he, he'd been at Oakley Districts and you know, I played against Oakley Districts as a junior, even though Warwick was probably, I don't know, he might be two or three years younger than me. So that knew of me. And uh, so I think it might have shocked me a little bit, but he was quiet as a mouse. And maybe because he wasn't kicking a goal and taking marks, maybe. Shut him up a little bit more than, uh, than normal, but uh, but yeah, he he was fine. I, I didn't have any any dramas or hassles with him. So, um, but I remember when he made the, the decision to actually leave the Swans and go to Brisbane. Uh, just thought that's just the, the wrong move for you, mate. You've gone for money, and it's just that's not going to work for you. And unfortunately, I was right for him for that purpose. But uh, but anyway, that's another matter. That's so right. Hey. After a prelim final in 1984, the next appearance was 1988 um, for the Magpies. And I guess my question leading into this is, from 1988, do you feel like that season was the beginning of the new Collingwood and one that sort of started the momentum that led into that famous year of 1990? Yeah, definitely. And it was created from a pre-season training camp that we went on in December of 87. And we... um. We're down at uh, Glen Maggie uh, and La Cola area. We're at a, a, a school camp, the Peninsula School Camp, down in Glen Maggie, and uh, we're there for I think, three or four days. And they tried to smash us for doing all sorts of stuff up at weird hours in the morning, and you know, just just killing our bodies basically and mentally. But then we went on a, a walk uh, through La Cola. We're supposed to get a place like Lake Tarly Khan, and anyway, um, that went horribly wrong. And wrong in the sense that um, they took us on the right, wrong, um, wrong path, and 
could say we got lost. Um, we never saw like Charlie Khan, but it got pretty extreme. Uh, we had very little food and water and et cetera for, for a number of days, but we got ourselves back out of there. But what it did was bonded the group really strongly and we had strong communication and conversations with players you probably never had time to because we're walking up and down mountains for 12 hours a day for six days or five days, whatever it was. So it actually created uh, this strong bond and and also a strong belief that if we can do that, there's nothing that's going to stop us now. Like we can do anything on a football field. So that was the that was the first step to changing us as a as a group. And '88, um, yeah, we went out in straight sets, but it was certainly uh, the path was set for um, what we now know as destiny in 1990. Paddles it further forward for Tony Shaw. There are Shaws everywhere. On to Morewood. Morewood, plenty of time to steady in the right forward pocket. Shoots at goal. That looks okay from here. Two goals to Morewood. I wanted to sort of go back um, to 86. Lee Matthews took over the coach, coaching reins. I just wanted to get a bit of an idea of what an early lethal was like in a coaching capacity. We know what he was like as a player, you know, relentless, tough, you know, skillful, just a star. But what was he like in his early days as a senior coach in the VFL? He set standards straight away and expectations and he used the word relentless. That's what he was like. Um, there was no, you know, B-grade level of performance. He expected the best from everyone every time we actually stepped out into the ground, whether it be training or whether it be at um, uh, game time. So I think that expectation and the, and the demand that he set and it's expressed through his communication, um, it made you want to actually perform at that level because you're going to cop it if you didn't. So um, they're very tough. Um, I wouldn't say he was a great communicator individually, to individuals, but um, he got his message across to a total group and uh, about where we needed to be to, to be successful. And uh, it certainly, I certainly that decision to get into the club at the end of '85 because he'd retired at the end of that season and to get him over as assistant coach. And I'm not sure there's a plan that Bob Rose was our coach at the time of the start of the '86 season, coaches in '85, whether that was um, all planned that he would do a few games and then let Lee take over. Not sure that was the case, but um, if you know a bit about that, then you can let me know. But it was never communicated to us that uh, in due time that that was always going to be the plan. But it was certainly a successful um, stint at Collingwood and certainly a successful move at that time. Before we talk about the, the 1990 final series, I guess just the home and away season, what was it about the home and away season that made you guys so successful? Was it your method, like you spoke about, you know, the bonding that sort of took part a couple of years before and you had a real, I guess, a bit of trust and belief in one another. But what was it about your method that just made you play such great footy in that 1990 home and away season? I think because we've been working on it for about five, like, as I said, Lee took over in 86, around four. So the, the methodology had been uh, in place, I guess, and sometimes it takes a while to get it exactly right. And you can't, the game can't exactly go your way. And we've seen that over every season, every game. Um, but I think once you've got that confidence and belief that this is the way we play and we do this very successfully, then your mindset is different. And we were mentally, we were super strong. We had great belief in each individual player that um, was playing out there on the, on the ground in any game. Uh, I can't remember what our win-loss ratio was that, that year. It might have been, might have won 20 maybe, 
I don't know, you've got the stats in front of you, but um, I just we just felt that we we weren't ever going to lose a game, and especially against Essendon. We had full confidence in, in the way we played the game and the way we approached that group um, that we could beat them. So they bet us in a, uh, I think it was a sellout at Waverley, I'm going to guess mid-year, and it was a, it was a great game exciting game. They won by six points but we walked off that ground that day and said that group will never ever beat us again. Um, and I think it took them a, long, a few years before they actually did. You got the wood on them? Well, I think it's just, even though we lost that game as I said, but we just knew that um, we can do better than what we did that day and I don't think they can match us. And uh, we proved that especially in the finals. That we better in the in the first final of the of that series, after the West Coast game, of course, when we played uh, S in the first time, and I think it was the twelve or fourteen goals. I think we might have won by. Uh, it was a fair margin, and then we uh, we beat them by eight goals in the grand final. So. Just got the stats in front of me now, so I'm just having a look of uh, when you played. So in the second semi, uh, 117 to 54. Right. Um, that was in that, yeah, that second semi-final, and obviously you met them uh, in the grand final a couple of weeks later. So yeah, 63 and 48, yeah. Speaking about the finals, it was extraordinary. You drew with West Coast in the opening week of the finals, and then, you know, there was no extra time back then. You actually had to return a week later to replay the game, so that added another week to the final series. Gee, the club yeah. had to work hard to get to that grand final and obviously, you know, to, to enjoy the successes. Yeah, it was... Um... It was a weird feeling that draw when the siren went. So we looked at we looked at each other and go, "Well, okay, how do we react to this emotionally?" And we sort of chilled out. We had a bit of a chuckle in some ways, and I think that just relaxed us a lot more for the for the next week. And I remember going into rooms after the game, and and Lee said something like, "Well, okay, we didn't lose. Positive. Um, we play him again next week. Let's well, be better next week, basically." Um, and I think the group just chilled out because we'd lost in and played the one game in the finals the year before in '89. That was against Melbourne. We lost. I think it was a fairly close-ish game, and we were out in straight sets the, the year before, as we said shortly ago. Um, so I think it was, it was actually a positive for us to to tie the game and uh, and then come out and we won comfortably the next week against West Coast, and, and we know the result of the Essendon game for, for the weeks following, but. It certainly uh, probably didn't help Essendon because they already had a week off. Then they had another week off, so yeah. they hadn't played you know competitive footy in effect for what, probably three weeks. Grand final, a great day for Collingwood. There's no doubt about it. Obviously, I guess it broke that that tag. The Collie Wobbles had been a little while since uh, you guys had been able to get that silverware. Um, there was a t- it was a tight first quarter and it had a lot of energy. And obviously, it's well known for its major scuffle. Why do you think Collingwood came out a little bit stronger and I guess um, you know, a little bit more disciplined in that second term? What was it about the messaging or you know the player talk amongst the group about how you would approach that second term? Because realistically, that was probably nearly the premiership quarter where you guys were able to get on top and, and set yourselves up. Yeah, look, you know, I've coached, uh, coached footy for a number of years and, uh, and obviously been coached for a number of years. And you ask any player, and go, oh, what did the coach say today or what did he say last week? You don't generally remember. You're so you're attuned to what they're saying, but not everything just sinks in because you get yourself so prepped for the game itself and the contest. Um, but I remember 
I remember a quarter time that day, Lee, um, he was pretty fired up, but he was certainly directing what he wanted us to do in the second quarter, and that's simply just play the ball. Forget about them, because the umpires will want to take control of the game because they feel like they've lost control because of what's just happened over the last 10 minutes. So I guarantee you, eyes on the ball, head over the ball, just play the ball, and they'll look after the player that plays the ball and the group that plays the, that plays the ball. And that's exactly what happened. And we just dominate. I'm not sure what we kicked that quarter. Was it maybe six goals or seven goals or eight goals? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if they kicked anything, but we certainly dominated that second quarter and uh, gave us a healthy lead at half time. But that was a strong message from Lee. And I think it was a great message. Yeah, six goals to one in that second quarter. Six so he's went yeah. up to yeah. uh, to lead by 34 points at half time. Yeah. Yeah. So, but. You know, as the crowd, as most of the crowd probably experienced in the years prior, um, that doesn't mean anything when you're talking Collingwood. So um, they have the ability to lose uh, the un- the unlosable game. Hey, once that siren sounded, Shane, can you remember where you were on the ground and the feeling you had realising that you were a premiership player? And obviously, you know, and you'd been around, I guess, the game for a little while now um, and to, to get that premiership medallion must have been a pretty special moment. Yeah, it was. It was. Um, I, I think I was somewhere. I think it was on the the MCC members' side, um, and I think it was somewhere between the sort of the halfback flank and the wing. And I remember turning around and seeing Jamie Turner, and then everyone jumping on on top of each other. Um, I think Shroy collapsed to the ground, and but I also remember seeing Anthony Danner, who I, I started my career off at the Swans, you know, ten years earlier. Um, and he's also um, my brother Tony's brother-in-law. Uh, they, they married the sisters of the family, and um, I saw the expression on his face. And then it was uh, for a few seconds. I, yeah, I felt sorry for Anthony because he wasn't about to enjoy what I'm enjoying. But you know, that's uh, that's competition. Isn't it? One lose, one wins. So um, there was a lot of relief, I think, because not that you know most of us in that team. Anything to do with the prior losses. I think Banksy takes and Tony Shaw had experienced a previous loss in 19, probably 81, I reckon. I'm not sure, maybe 1980 as well. But, um, but for the rest of us, we hadn't experienced it. But there's certainly that external pressure and expectation and um, that's placed on the club, which you know, it rubs off on the players to, to a point. So to actually get, get it get it done and completed for yeah, for everyone involved at the footy club. And, you know, we've heard that being expressed over the last number of weeks when the boys won two weeks ago. It's, uh, it, it is a total club and total supporter group that you're playing for. So it was a, it was a lot of relief and um, um, but certainly uh, an enjoyable time. Gathers it, can't get his kick away. Shane Morwood, hand pass goes back. Russell fumbles, critical fumble. Morris is in there. Now a chance for Lehman. Russell gives it back to Morwood. Morwood off the left foot. The pass, not bad. Dacos marks in front of Rice. Too far out to score. Off to Morwood. Into an open goal goes Graham Wright. Collingwood get another one. You spoke before about um, you know, playing your first game in defence uh, for Collingwood on, on the great Warwick Kappa. I just think back of the time that you were playing, you know, late 80s, early 90s. Geez, we saw some great forwards uh, during that time, um, who were some of the ones that uh, you enjoyed playing on? But then also, too, who was you know the one that really caused you the most grief 
um, and you couldn't sort of stop him no matter what you tried? Um, there were such great players. You, yeah, Jason Dunstall, Dermot Brereton, um, Gary Ablett, Steve Kernahan. But Gary Ablett Senior was probably uh, – um, I wasn't – I was never nervous about playing on any of those players. I just know that you know, I had to be my best to try and restrict – their impact on the on the game, but I suppose the one that I got excited mostly to play on was Gary Senior because he could do anything. You know? uh, I think some of the times I was playing on him, he was Malcolm Blight had allowed him to move from anywhere from full forward up to the wing back. He was like a an on baller from in the front half of the ground. So he was such a uh, an incredible player that. He was so good at the ground. He's so good in the air. Uh, strong mark, kicker from fifty and sixty. But um, I uh, had some great battles against him. And uh, um, from my recollection, uh, maybe a little bit biased, but uh, yeah, I don't think I ever got um, um, defeated by them individually, where they, they uh, pull my pants down, so to speak. So it was always a pretty good contest with a lot of players. But Gary Ablett's definitely the best player I played on, and uh, because he could just do anything. Whereas, yeah, Dermy, uh, Dermy, obviously very, very good player, champion player, but um, probably not as as dynamic uh, as a Gary Ablett and and Jason Dunstall, who's a super player as well, but um, again, couldn't do the things that Gary Ablett uh, used to do. And didn't play on Tony Tony Lockett. He was too big for me. <laughs> he, he probably had me by about twenty kilos. So. And he was too scary, so I was happy not to be playing on him anyway. I believe that's Ronnie McEwen or Craig Kelly. <laughs> I love it. Hey, mm. the game on field and off field, how much did that change from when you started in the early 80s to when you retired in the early 90s? How much was the difference with, I guess, game style and 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 how things sort of progressed on, on the field, but also from an off-field perspective as well? Um, I think on field, I think it was more just – I think the game was still one-on-one competitive from 1980 to 93 in my last year. But I think there was a bit more structure in place probably in the last six or seven years of, of, of my career. And the speed of the game was just, you know, it was getting ramped up and it's even quicker now. I mean, they're, they're trained physically uh, different to what we were exposed to back then, um, which allows them to run quicker. But I think the human body just keeps evolving too, you know, every decade. Next generation of... Uh, um, male, human, or even females now that are playing, just they just get better, bigger, stronger, faster. So um, yeah, you get a lot of questions from people. Go, oh, do you think you could last in this this style of of football? Uh, my answer would be, I think from a structure and everything point of view, yes. But could I physically keep up with them? Mm. I don't know. The answer is probably no. Um, but you know. Again, we're not trained. We weren't trained the way that these guys are trained these days. But certainly, structure has definitely changed by the time I finished in '93. And and as we say, like '94, they went semi-professional, and then '97 was fully professional. So, yeah, and that's just allowed for different structures and styles to uh, be developed, and uh, it provides the game we see today. One of the great things that you got to win. Be involved in during your time in the game shame was uh, state of origin footy which unfortunately now is i guess a thing of the past which is a real shame because it just uh, was fantastic you know when it was uh, in its halcyon days during those 80s and 90s you had the rep- the chance to represent the big v uh gee that must have been a great moment and uh you know to re- to wear that jumper and 
I guess to be playing alongside some of the greats of the game and then having some of the greats off field, you know, looking after the big V as well. And I think uh, the likes of Bobby Skilton and Teddy Whitten and the like. Yeah, and you know, the late Ron Barassi who passed away you know, a few weeks ago now. And, uh, yeah, they're just, you know, in the history of the game, these, those names you just mentioned, it's so massive. And to be around those type of people and then and then I look at the players that are, I'm around uh, next to and some of the great defenders of, you know, Chris Langford's of the world and up at the front half, you got Jason Dunstall, Tony Lockett, Gary Ablett Sr. You go, wow. And you got, you know, Flea Waitman in the middle. You got, you know, Simon Madden, Jared Healy. You just think, wow, am I at this level? And obviously I was because I was in that team. So, but it's a bit of a pinch myself type uh, moments where uh, you're playing at that elite level. So, uh, and the game is just so different. Um, it's faster, uh, more skillful. Again, goes to another level because the ball just doesn't hit the ground. It was just incredible. So, um, so a great experience, and uh, I remember my first my first game was over in uh, in Perth against uh, Western Australia, and it was a it was a great game that we played on the halfback flank against uh, Gary Bacanara. He was a, another superstar of the competition. And, um, let's just say I had a day out in the halfback flank. I think I had thirty four touches or something. I remember Teddy Whitten coming in after the game. Going, F me, Shane Moon had it. 34 touches in the halfway place. Yeah, just, you know, the way Teddy was. He was very uh, automatic. Um, so, um, yeah, it was just uh, uh, great moments. Great things to look back on. Yeah, that's terrific. 34 touches on the halfback flank. Fantastic. And to get the uh, the praise of the great late Teddy Whitten, uh, you've uh, you've certainly impressed him then with the, the game of then. Yeah, exactly right, mate. Exactly right. So, but all, all great memories, mate. Looks for Morwood. Yes. Not so well done by Cowie then. He was in good position but stood flat-footed while Morwood chipped in beautifully to take his ninth mark. And he lines them up now from 40 metres out directly in front. He's kicked three. And a dozen kicks. And he's been an excellent player. Hey, I want to give you a couple of quick handballs to finish the podcast, Shane. I've uh, really enjoyed the chat, mate. I've loved uh, learning more about your footy journey. So the first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to give you five ex-teammates' names um, and just mm-hmm. share a couple of words on, I guess, the type of teammate they were and uh, the experience you had with these guys. So the first one, you mentioned him before, the great Peter Dacos. Incredible in the sense of what he could do in certain what would look like awkward moments and then kick the most incredible goal from all angles. Um, and we've seen some great players over the last number of years. Um, I'm not trying to emulate him, but certainly they've been inspired by what they've they've seen Peter do and gone back through footage, no doubt. Um, but for him to do it in all situations, under pressure, physically being grabbed and kicking goals from absolutely nowhere. And, yeah, there's one of those, and you, know, you mentioned the West Coast game, uh, when he's on the on the wrong side of the of the field, left pocket, and he kicks with his right foot, and somehow splits the middle. You can see the umpire sort of move his legs the other way. You just think, how in the hell did he do that? <laughs> um, and for a player that I don't believe, and I've told him told this to him that he didn't work hard enough. Uh, I don't think I was there for eleven years. I don't think I saw him in one preseason. Right. He'd always have a sore knee or something. So uh, I think he could have been better. Yeah. Right. Um, but yeah, they call him, you know, he's magical, magic, 
uh, and he was. It was incredible. Tony Shaw is the next one I want to ask you about. Uh, captain, premiership of 1990, uh, tough midfielder, hard work ethic. Give us a bit of an insight about Shaw in a few words. Shaw was inspirational. Uh, one of the greatest leaders that uh, I had the privilege to be under. Um, and for a person that, uh, and he'd admit this, that he didn't have a lot of ability, but you know, from a, a football skill set point of view, and as he would say that he's lucky to kick over a jam team, he got the best out of himself for, what, 313 games, whatever it was he played. Um, and he was just a superstar of our club and certainly the competition. And uh, we saw the emotion of, of an elation for him when he uh, held up that cup in 1990. So uh, he deserves everything he gets that man. Another premiership teammate, James Manson. Jimmy. Um, he was the spark that got us going in that replay. Uh, against West Coast. I'm not sure if his first quarter from memory was incredible. His attack on the footy, his marks, he I think hit a couple of goals. He got us going in that uh, in that replay final and he was uh, certainly a super player for, for us over a number of years. Um, and probably, I don't know, misaligned in some way or uh, maybe poorly judged because of his kicking action, but... Um, yeah, I think he was certainly impactful for us for, for he provided us over a number of years, but certainly in that final series. One of my favourite midfielders from the Pies, and obviously he spent the, the latter couple of years at the Saints, is Tony Francis. I reckon he was a, a great player, Tony Francis. Well, I knew you were going to say him. So little man, as we called him, a little angry man. So famous for copying six weeks for a little jab with his foot to uh, Murray, La- uh, Murray Rant, I think it was, over in, uh, over in Perth. So... Uh, super player, uh, one of the best and fairest at, at the club, um, hard at it, fast, uh, skills were pretty good, um, along with him and Scotty Russell in that 1990 uh, team, premiership team, they certainly gave us a bit more um, spark and buzz around the stoppages and uh, certainly influential in our performance in 1990. And the last one I want to ask you about, uh, big key forward, obviously then, Spent a little bit of time at Brisbane and doing great things in the AFLW space. Uh, Craig Starsevich. Starch, yeah, what a great man. And uh, he was a great player for us. So he um, probably took a while to settle in, I reckon. And uh, I don't think we ever saw the best of him. He had some knee issues. And uh, part of the reason why he ended up at Brisbane, but uh, if you look at the stats, he didn't play many games for, for Brisbane at all and ended up in there. Uh, phys ed part of it and was very uh, instrumental in getting them their physical condition for their, their you know four grand finals they played in the early 2000s so uh, and as you said doing a great job with the AFL women through their team so a couple of players under his belt there certainly super influential such a mobile player and and I know he uh, Terry Danaher sort of knocked him out in the in the grand final but uh, I think it was I think it was Craig and Jamie Turner were the inter or reserves players, interchange players at that stage. Um, and when he came on, he only came on for a quarter and a half. He was so influential for us, and I think he kicked a goal and the TD knocked him out on the on the wing. I think he doesn't remember much about the game, poor Craig, but certainly a great player for us. Tall, uh, fast, mobile, um, and gave us a lot of different options as that player. I did have Craig on as one of my early guests on the um, on the podcast, and yeah, when we spoke about the ninety grand final, he said, "If I didn't watch the footage, I wouldn't really be able to give you too much, just because uh, of obviously the circumstances of what occurred." But um, yeah, a terrific bloke, 
Yeah, absolutely, man. Absolutely. And it's great to see him doing well. And hopefully he gets a gig, if, I'm not sure if he wants to, uh, at senior level with the, with the men. But um, he looks like he's pretty happy doing what he's doing now. Who's the best character that you sort of got to spend time with in your time in the game? And I speak when I spoke when I suppose I speak about character, uh, you know, someone who yeah, shared a lot of friendly banter with, you could enjoy a beer with, um, that sort of uh, I guess uh, characteristics of uh, of the character I'm looking for. Yeah, look, Ronnie McEwen is pretty. Yeah, we got on really well and uh, had a probably same sense of humour. He probably drank more beers than me. I I'm not a big drinker, Trent, so. Uh, two or three beers, that's probably about it for me. So, um, but yeah, Ronnie probably drinks uh, a lot, lot more than that, but <laughs> just a great guy to be around. And yeah, I mentioned the little man, Tony Francis, before the three of us would, would hang out a fair bit. But uh, Darren Mullane and I were really good mates, and uh, we could uh, talk some real crap and uh, you know, travel with each other on the planes to wherever destination we're going. And we're both Noble Park boys, so um, we just had this uh, connection. and. Uh, we ended up uh, being known as uh, part of the Dingley Taxi because Lee Matthews was living in Dingley uh, for a number of years and we played in the state, he'd pick me up first. So unfortunately, I'd be in front with Lee and then we'd pick up uh, Pants last uh, and he'd sit right behind Lee. So um, he was sort of hiding, but we'd have a good conversation, the three of us. But I remember um, one day we're heading to the airport and Lee, Lee says, my pre-game addresses, you two look like you're falling asleep and not even listening. And I'm thinking, okay, how do I respond to this? So I turned, my, turned to my right and looked at Pants and behind Lee, and he just had this big smile on his face, and I knew what he, I knew what he meant by the smile. So I looked back at Lee and said, mate, we don't listen to what you say. And he just, Pants just <laughs> lost his shit laughing. <laughs> Lee, I'm not sure it took it that well because Lee has a big ego and uh, he would not have liked that one little bit. But, um, but as I said before, sometimes you don't listen to what they say. You, you know it anyway. You've heard it before many, many times or you've been practicing or trained anyway. So it's just going over just to reinforce what the message is and what we need to be doing. So, yeah, sometimes you look like we're falling asleep, but, yeah. I love it. Hey, mate, and the very last question, uh, in a sentence, what was it like playing in front of a packed house at Victoria Park? It just seems like it was enemy territory for those that came to Victoria Park. Um, what was it like from a player's perspective to play in front of a, I guess, not a hostile crowd, but a very passionate and upbeat Collingwood far faithful? Yeah, I'd say probably hostile, mate. You can use that word. Yeah, well, you're um, probably right. I want to be. I sort of want yeah. to be gentle. I don't want to be uh, <laughs> going. Yeah, uh, they, you love, know. they love being hostile. They love giving it to the opposition. Um, mate, absolutely awesome. I love playing at Victoria Park. You know, one of my favourite grounds. And I love playing at the G and Waverley and uh, the Victoria Park was was sensational. So I mean, they packed in about forty eight thousand people, and uh, mate, it was loud. And uh, I didn't like it when we lost. Um, we didn't lose that many at Victoria Park, but uh, we certainly played some pretty good football. And it's just a, yeah, as they took, they call it the 19th man these days with the Collingwood faithful, and uh, it's definitely the case back in uh, in my days in the 80s and early 90s. Shane Morwood, it's been an absolute pleasure to uh, reflect on your footy journey with both South Melbourne, but more uh, more in with the Collingwood Football Club. Thanks for jumping on the podcast. Uh, my pleasure, Trent. Uh, happy to be on board. So, um, and thanks for the invite. Number seven, Shane Morwood. That's the end of episode number 81. 
If you've missed any previous episodes, you can catch them all on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Amazon Music. We're on all the social media platforms, so drop us a line on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter on any particular episode you've enjoyed or a guest you would love to hear. Next week, our guest is former St Kilda defender, Justin Peckett. It's tough, it's rugged, it's good, solid AFL football.